I know Water Methodist Church is going strong thanks to uh, God's provision, and uh, He's just really seen us through a hard season. Um, this upcoming Sunday is Pentecost. We're going to be meeting at the North Park in Nowata, so I hope you'll come join us if you're in the area. This, uh, this episode is a proclamation of the word from this last Sunday, and um, I was talking with one lay member, and she said, Jeffrey, ever since we got loose, you're, you're preaching on a whole other level, and I don't know how true that is. I think it just feels pretty different <clears throat> to be not under the, the thumb of a larger body. And I do talk about denominationalism a little bit in uh, this segment. Um, and the long and short of it for me, and I don't say it like this in the segment, so that's why I'm saying it here, is uh, I think denominations are useful. I think local churches are, are made to be in shared covenant together. I think they should be under shared authority and some shared budget. Um, but I think denominations often take themselves too seriously. And um, so I, I want us to to hold our denominational affiliations lightly so that we can be in good fellowship with people who are not part of our denominations. So, uh, and we should always be seeking Christian unity. So, um, and that's, you know, what what was the, the touchstone of, of that conversation is Jesus' words aiming towards unity. So anyway, um, as always, I really enjoy preaching. I'm so glad I get to have a life where I I would do it for free. I, I hope nobody in leadership hears me say that because I do like that they pay me, but um, I really enjoy it. I love what I do. And if you haven't checked out the podcast that I do, it's called Plain Spoken, all one word. You can find it on YouTube and Facebook and Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, and it's just a, that's a labor of love that I'm doing, um, hopefully as an ambassador of, of our church, uh, and hopefully to, um, enrich the Methodist movement for today. So, um, anyway, that has like news commentary and, and, uh, some other hopefully helpful things. All right. Um, I'll be done talking for now. You know what? I will make one more plug. Um, I have a Friday mailing that I do for the church. You can sign up for the newsletter by going to our website at knowwhatamethodist.org. I also have a substack at Jeffrey, Rip, Jeffrey Rickman at subs. No, that's not right. JeffreyRickman.substack.com, which is doing quite well, and I've been trying to uh, promote uh, a benevolent project of helping get a church built in Abuja, Nigeria, where I have some a friend leading a church. So if you wouldn't mind checking that out, I think that would be really great. So anyway, hope you enjoy the podcast today. God bless you. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Apostles chapter 1 verses 6 through 14 which you can find on page 1527 of your pew Bibles listen to the word of God when they therefore were come together they asked of him saying Lord wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel 
And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in the utter, utter, but in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And when he hath spoken these things, while they, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye, stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then were turned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they were come in, they went up into the upper room, where abode with Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, <coughs> Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Lotus, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. This is the word of the Lord. So after I get done talking through this section, we're going to sing the hymn, I Love to Tell the Story. And the reason is because the story has power. The story has truth. Christians in our faith, we don't just talk about principles. You know, you'll hear people talk about Christian principles, and there are such things. However, the principles alone are not salvific. You can't just go through life talking about truth and justice and grace and mercy and expect for salvation to follow from that. I know we uh, in the mid-20th century in this country, uh, biblical illiteracy was almost as bad as it is now, but everybody still went to church and everybody still practiced Christian values. And they thought that that was salvific, and it really isn't. Um, the, the reality of our day today, it's not that, um, that everybody is falling away from the church. It's more that people are being exposed as never really having been the church. Um, and so there's a great culling that's happening right now is those who hold on are the ones who actually hungered and thirst for righteousness, actually wanted to walk in the pathway of Christ. And then those who just wanted to, to have some order, have some peace outside of Christ, or they were fine with him being named, but they weren't willing to sacrifice and die for Christ. Those are the ones that are falling away right now. And it's discouraging for those of us who are holding on sometimes to see just how many people really weren't in this um, uh, not on the level that Christ required. Because the level that Christ requires is a level of life and death. You know, I've said it several times from the pulpit. What we're doing here is the most important thing in life. 
And I don't mean listening to my sermons is the most important thing in life. Uh, sermons I really don't think are very salvific. I know some people really think they're going to save somebody by getting the sermon just right. Um, so far as I'm concerned, Jesus was the best preacher that ever was, but Judas wasn't really willing to listen, and you know how it worked out with him, right? I don't think there's anything I can do to save you or make you wake up if you want to stay asleep or make you obey if you want to be rebellious. But I do think that what I can do, what I've done as a pastor here for eight years, can you believe I've been here eight years? We look at the word together, we talk about what it means. One of the things that people like to do with the Bible is they like to try and discount it because they don't like what it says. One of the ways that they discount it is they say, well, you know, the New Testament was written hundreds of years after Jesus died. There were no eyewitnesses that really wrote it down. It was all oral tradition and it all got blown out of proportion. That's not true, and one of the reasons we know that is, uh, do y'all remember what book we just read from? Acts of the Apostles. Do you know what other book uh, was written by the same author? Luke. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, I previously wrote to you an orderly account of the life of Christ Jesus. The God, Luke was the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote it before Acts of the Apostles. And if you've read to the, Acts of, to the end of Acts of the Apostles, Paul is still alive in that. Paul only died a couple of decades after Jesus, okay? He had a few decades of ministry, and then he died. Acts of the Apostles was written before Paul died. That means it was written down easily in the era of many eyewitnesses of Christ Jesus. This is a reliable text. Early Christian uh, people wrote down that, that the Gospel of Luke was not the first Gospel written down. It was probably Mark, which means Mark was written down just a couple years after Jesus died. This is a reliable text. It's reliable history. It literally happened. We serve not a metaphorical God of metaphorical stories. We serve a literal, real God who has acted in history and done these things. When we read the story about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus being bodily with them and talking with them and then rising up into heaven, that literally happened. It wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't an optical illusion. Christ Jesus in the flesh, resurrected from the dead, spoke, ate, prayed, sang, with his disciples, it doesn't say the praying and the singing thing, but I mean, that's what they did when they were alive. I mean, that proceeds into death. Anyway, and then he rose into heaven bodily, and then they're looking up into heaven. What did they ask him before he ascended into heaven? Do you remember the nature of that question? What was it? He took him out to this mountain, and they asked. Put it, you can put it in your own words. Okay. When are you going to bring the kingdom? Now, the way they ask it is, is it now time to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they've been talking about the day of the Lord for some time as Judeans because they used to have their own kingdom there, right? Ruled by first Saul, then David, then Solomon. Then it divided into north and south, and then they got overrun in the north by the Assyrians and in the south by the Babylonians, and then they came back together, but they were dominated again, and then the Romans were dominating them. They were ready for God to have his own kingdom again so that the nations might bow down, as so many of the scriptures talked about. And they said, Jesus, is it time? Are we going to do this thing? And his answer was, it ain't for you to know. Isn't that a wonderful answer? Don't you love getting that answer? My kids love that answer. Whenever they're asking me, and I go, it's not your business. What do I say whenever I don't want to tell you, Susie? Yeah. I say none you. They say, huh? I say none you business because I think I'm funny and I know I'm not and I appreciate y'all pretending with me. But I mean, that's essentially what Jesus says. It's not for you to know the times of the season. Rather, you need to go back 
And he gives them a prophecy that they're going to go and they're going to spread the news about Jesus Christ to the uttermost part of the earth. That's what their job is now to do. And when they go back, they spend time in prayer. But before we talk about that, um, I, I find memes helpful, and I should have downloaded this one today. But anyone ever watch Andy Griffith, the Andy Griffith show? What was his son's name? Opie, little redhead kid. You couldn't tell because black and white, but anyway. Uh, it's just a picture of them talking, and Opie saying, Pa, when's Jesus going to return? And Andy responds, well, son, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. We don't know when he's going to come back, but when he comes, we will welcome him. And, oh, boy, are we excited and ready for that. That's, that's, I, I butchered it, I'm sure, but that's essentially the thought. You know, anytime you hear a pastor or anybody, a Christian, saying, I know with certainty Christ is coming back here at this time, uh, run away from that person. Jesus was very clear. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to see it. I mean, the signs of the times have been going on for 2,000 years. We are living in the last days. But whether or not that final day comes today, and could it come today? Absolutely. All of a sudden, we could hear a trumpet blast, the sky roll back as a scroll, and oh boy, is it too late to repent. It could be 1,000 years from now. Because for God, 1,000 years is like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. We, we want to have that control. We want to go, okay, well, it's coming in 40 years, so I can just kind of take my time and kick my feet up. I can go home and watch Netflix or play video games or do whatever. We don't have that time. We don't know. We just know we have time right now. And today is the day of salvation, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent, be born again, Walk in newness of life. If we put it off till tomorrow, we might not get a tomorrow. Christ rose up into the clouds, and they're sitting there wondering when he's going to come. And all of a sudden, two angels appear and say, why are you guys standing around? Get back and start praying. And so they do. They go back to the upper room, and they're praying for days and days until all of a sudden they've been praying. Has anyone ever prayed? Let me just, I'm just curious. Don't raise your hand. But have you ever prayed for more than an hour with a group of people? I'm ashamed to say, until this last year, until January, I never had before. I was with a group of people that put together a worship event. We were worshiping all day together. We came, and we had business to do. We started praying, and then we kept on praying, and then we kept on praying, and for two hours, we prayed together. I'd never done anything like it. I wasn't bored. I didn't want to go to sleep. In fact, I got disturbed in my spirit. I was so engaged. You know, the, the version, you know, I start praying over here. After I'm praying for about four minutes, I, I got that little ticker in my head going, okay, it's about time, Jeffrey. Somebody's going to go to sleep. We got to wrap this up. There was a pastor here that used to preach or uh, pray long prayers. Everybody started ragging against this pastor. And one day he finally got done praying. A little boy over here yelled out, 10 minutes, 38 seconds. And everybody laughed because the joke was, oh, boy, this pastor likes praying too much. There's something wrong with that, I think. You know, wouldn't it be quite a thing if we all got in here and we had an order of worship, but the Holy Spirit moved and we all just started praying together? Throw out the word. We just start reading scripture, start praying, and, you know, it gets noon, and we know that the Depot Cafe has got our spot open for us, but, hey, we stay here and we keep praying together. You know, I hunger for a faith 
that is that open to the leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit where my plans go away and I just follow. Because what happened to the apostles whenever, you know, they weren't worrying about going home and working their job. They just stayed in that upper room and they prayed and they prayed some more. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit came the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit manifested above them. It looked like tongues of flame and it rested on their heads and they were filled with the Spirit. We're going to hear that story next week. If you haven't heard the story of Pentecost, come, well, actually just go home and read it. You don't need to wait till next week. But God shows up to those who appeal to him. But the problem is, so many people, they want to just say a little prayer. Oh, Lord, come to me. And they expect him to just, they think God is a genie. God is not a genie. God is Lord of heaven and earth. And he does, he is faithful. He comes to those who seek him. But the question is, are you really seeking him? Are we really seeking him? These apostles, they sought the Lord. And oh, boy, did he come. And I'm of the mind that, that, yes, as our church continues to grow in faithfulness, as we are raising our children to seek the Lord, as, you know, there's this wonderful reciprocal relationship between adults and kids where the kids see the adults praying and worshiping at worship, and they go, this is real. I'm going to do this more. And then they start getting into it, and then the adults start looking at the kids, and they're like, man, they're a better worshiper than I am. I need to step up my game. And then there's this dialogue where we all start realizing how real this is, how this is the center of our lives and then all of a sudden, we look around and we realize we have put away worldly concerns and we are just walking in the Lord together. And oh boy, is his power on us. I believe God has already been supernaturally active in this assembly. I've seen him do amazing things in many people's lives here. I've seen him get this church through seasons of life that conquered other churches like it was nothing for us. And it's not because you have a good pastor. I'm not a good pastor. I'm not a bad pastor. I'm somewhere middling, and that's fine. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with God's faithfulness and your trust in him. And so the exhortation today is keep trusting in him. Trust in him more. Give more of yourself to him. And be seeking those opportunities to seek his face in prayer with other believers. Have you ever been with a believer who's just really strong in faith, and then out of nowhere they just grab your hands and start praying? It's like, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, we do these things. <laughs> this is why we talk about it. We make it make sense up here, but it's supposed to impact our relationships, every aspect of our lives. And prayer is supposed to be like our love language, our first language. And yet for so many of us, we don't even know how to pray out loud. Let me exhort you, brothers and sisters. Let prayer be your love language. Speak it so that it becomes thoughtless, effortless, that you're going through your days in prayer with God. So it's just not even a thought, of course, I'm sharing my day with God. Because we have a God who is faithful, amen? amen. And he sends his spirit to those who seek him, amen? amen. All right, our psalm is number 60, Psalm 68. It's on page 792 in your hymnal if you'd like to see how it's printed. And this is kind of a weird melody we're singing today. It's supposedly a Chinese mem a melody. Sometimes I wonder if white people are like, oh, this sounds kind of Chinese-esque. I'm just going to say it's a Chinese melody. I don't know. Um, but it sounds, I don't know. I think we've done it before. Uh, what's the starting note? Sing God's glory. Sing God's glory above the heavens. Yeah, that's how it goes. Okay. So this is how it sounds. Sing God's glory above the heavens. Praise God's name in all the earth. All right, let's just sing that through once, and then Cody will read back and forth with us. 
Sing God's glory above the hands. Praise God's name in all the earth. Let God arise. Let God's enemies be scattered. Let those who hate God flee. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before fire, let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be joyful. Let them exult before God. Let them be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to God's name. Lift up a song to the one who rides upon the clouds. Exult before the one whose name is Lord. Sing God's glory above the heavens. Praise God's name in all the earth. In the holy habitation, God is father of orphans and protector of widows. God gives the desolate a home to dwell in, leads our prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down water at the presence of God, the God of Sinai, at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your heritage as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Sing God's glory above the heavens. Praise God's name in all the earth. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. O rider in the heavens, the ancient heavens, God's voice goeth forth, a mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Wondrous is God in the sanctuary, the God of Israel, who gives power and strength to the people. Sing God's glory above the heavens. Praise God's name in all the earth. There's a, a lot that could be said about, um, you know, I kind of wonder if the reason that the uh, people selected this for the Revised Common Lectionary, we're supposed to be focusing on the ascension today, the ascension of Christ into heaven. And twice here refers to our God, God the Father, as riding on the clouds. Did you catch that? Verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to God's name. Lift up a song to the one who rides upon the clouds. And then again in verse 33, O rider in the heavens, the ancient heavens, God's voice goeth forth, a mighty voice. Oftentimes whenever it talks about God the Father in the Bible, you kind of get the sense that he just kind of, sits on his throne all the time he just sits in the highest heavens and he doesn't really go anywhere and he's just being worshiped at all times and that's clearly what he's doing in revelation that's clearly what he's doing at many points but there's also a notion in many of the psalms that god is he's moving he's doing things sometimes he walks upon the earth and it melts the mountains sometimes he speaks and it breaks the cedars god is living and active and moving around and doing things and he is powerful and it's a big deal and that's why we don't say his name usually in the assembly. Uh, I don't know how many, whenever it talks about how powerful his name is, his name is not Lord. 
His name, we, Lord is a title, it means boss, right? But he has a name, and we typically don't use it in the assembly because it's very powerful, and you want to make sure that when you use it, you're ready. So that's one of the reasons why you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. It has power. You don't want to mess around with it. Anyway, that's all I feel like I need to say on this particular thing. Are we ready to go to our third reading? All right, I'd welcome that reader forward. Good morning, everyone. Today's third reading comes from the first letter of Peter, the fourth chapter, verse 12 through 14, and the fifth chapter, verse 6 through 11, which you can find on page 1710 or 1710 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And now to chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober and vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the things I preached against several times is prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is a, a uniquely American invention. Uh, it's a doctrine that because God loves you, he doesn't want you to go through anything unpleasant, painful, harmful, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, happy, not have any suffering whatsoever in your life. There are many, uh, a charlatan preacher who've gotten very rich preaching this doctrine because, of course, people want to hear about how God wants them to be happy. And if you just give some money to the church and say your prayers, he will bless you. He'll make you rich. He'll give you a pretty wife. He'll take away disease from your family. You won't have any issues. That's a lie from the evil one. Because the reality is that the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. And for those who are strengthened in the faith, he provides many trials. There are trials. You know, if you read Hebrews, it couldn't be any more clear that if the Lord loves you, he will send trials your way. He doesn't tempt you. You should never say the Lord is tempting me. But there are trials that await faithful believers. And so in verse 12 here in 1 Peter, he says, Do not think it strange when you have fiery trials that come to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. Let's, you know, one of the things we're talking about today in, in the ascension of Christ, the reason we talk about this is because that has a lot to do with us. When we are baptized, according to Paul in Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7, baptism seals our fate with Christ's faith. And fate, and that means that we die to self, we're born again in Christ, and that we similarly live and die in Christ because we're also raised with Christ. Who wants to be raised with Christ? Who wants to be in the heavenly realms with Christ? Well, then that means that we are baptized, we die to self in Christ, we're raised in Christ, and we are a new creation now, and we live and die as he did. So let's talk about how Jesus lived and died. Was he some comfortable upper-middle-class person who had no real struggles? He was a peasant, mobile preacher who was hated everywhere he went, 
who people took great offense to, to the degree that they eventually killed him for it. And then Jesus said, he who would come after me, he who would follow in my footsteps, let him deny himself or herself. Take up his cross daily. Remember the cross, that's the thing up there. They would nail your hands and feet to it and you would suffer for hours naked, ashamed, scorned, hated, embarrassed. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's the, that's the Savior we're here talking about today. So he lived and he died in this way, and then he was raised. And we say we want to be raised with him, but then for some reason we got a whole nation full of Christians who they don't want to live like him. They don't want to suffer like him. Well, and let's be fair. Jesus didn't want to suffer, did he? At Golgotha, he wasn't just going, oh, God, I'm so excited to suffer and die. You know, he asked that the cup would pass, but even so, when it came, he didn't flinch. And that's what this is written for us. This first Peter reading, it's saying... Don't think it's really weird when suffering comes. This is the way of Christ. Suffering will come. It isn't weird. It's how it is. This is the culture we've been brought into. This is the path that leads to God. Don't get weirded out. Don't be mystified. Don't think God is failing you. God is loving you. Lean on him. Why? It says, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, his glory will be revealed on that last day and you will be filled with exceeding joy. The notion is that when you suffer in Christ, you are participating in his sufferings. Isn't that amazing? We have the story of Jesus being abandoned on the cross and doing it all alone, but through suffering in Christ, we can join him at the cross. Our sufferings can be united with his. Our sufferings can be holy. They should be holy. And yet, how many Christians, whenever the going gets tough, Oh, I just don't feel very spiritually. I don't feel like praying anymore. I don't feel like worshiping anymore. I can't pick up my Bible. The suffering should drive you into the arms of Christ Jesus. I love that first hymn we sung. I will arise and go to Jesus, and he will embrace me with his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are. There it is. You know it. We sing it. But for some reason, whenever things get hard, we don't believe it. We just suck it up, and we, we just put our head down, we grit our teeth, and we just bear it. That's not how Christians suffer. We suffer within and through Christ. Y'all, I feel like I'm just talking another language. I, I talk to so many people about this, and they're just like, I don't know. You know. On a fundamental level, so many people, if, if it requires suffering, uh, I'm just not a fan. Count me out. I'll be back when it's easy again. Friends, that way lies damnation. Be prepared for the hard times. They're coming. So that's why this is written. Don't, be, don't think it's strange when the fiery trial comes along. This is just how it is. Then the, ver, the, the exhortation starting in verse 6 of chap, chapter 5 is, Humble yourselves. That means put yourself down. Be low. Don't be entitled. Oh, I should have this kind of life. Oh, I deserve this much money. Oh, I should. Don't be like that. Humble yourself and God will lift you up. Cast all your care to him because he cares for you. And I'm going to give you a little sermon now about venting. We live in a culture where we're told that venting is okay. If you don't know what I'm talking about, venting is when you got some anxiety, some resentment, some nastiness, and you, you convince yourself that you can't solve it, God can't solve it, so you're going to let just a little poison out to somebody. And you're going to expect them to give you some sympathy, and then you're going to go back to your toxic dysfunction. So you're just going to harbor this poison, you're going to let a little bit out at a time, you're going to vent, and then you're going to hold on to that. And that's not how Christians live. 
I would say that's not even how like responsible adults live. It's just not a functional way to go through life. But I would say when you are in Christ, you cast all your cares not to your best. You don't put a portion of your cares to your best buddy. You cast all your cares on Christ Jesus, who is, who is the balm that solves all wounds. Balm, B-A-L-M. Uh, he's, a, he's a comfort. He's the master healer. So our job is not to harbor anxiety and resentment and let just a little bit at a time out. Our job is to cast all of our cares on Christ Jesus. He cares for us, and he can solve every problem. He can heal every wound. And you either believe that, and you cast all your cares on him, or you don't believe that, and you let out little bits of poison in different places, which makes the world, of, of course, a worse place. Don't do it. Shame, shame. All right. Um, verse 8, be sober. Be vigilant. And it means that literally. You know, don't get drunk with wine. It's very clear. But also, just wake up. Be awake, alert. Don't go home and fall asleep. I remember my brother offended me so much in high school. That's when Coldplay got big. I don't know if you listen to them. They're a very pleasing band. And my brother hated him. I said, what's wrong with you? How could you hate Coldplay? He says, they're singing the world to sleep, man. And I said, yeah, they kind of are. <laughs> we want to be asleep. It feels good to be asleep. It really, it's rough to be just awake to the suffering and injustice of the world. And we want something to distract us. We want something to, to take our attention away from it. And Christ, the, when you follow Christ, is saying, no, wake up, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because you have an enemy. He wanders around like a prowling lion. He's a hungry lion. He wants to devour you. And he wants nothing more than prey that is distracted and has no idea of the threat. That's the majority of most Christians. We should stay awake and alert because the enemy is looking for his opportunity to strike and he will get you and take you from your Savior. Now, I, I should be very clear. Nothing can take us from the love of Christ Jesus. But Satan can enter into those cheeks, chinks in our armor and we can choose to leave. I've seen it happen over and over, and you can either say, well, they were never with us to begin with, or you can realize, if you don't stay strong and vigilant, the evil one will needle his way in. If that wasn't something that happened, I don't see why this would be in here. It's saying, be awake, be vigilant, because the evil one is a prowling lion, he is hungry, and you are his dinner. Wake up! There's some other good stuff in there. You can read it later. We've got to move on. Today's gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. You can find it in your few Bibles on page 1517, 1517. Listen again to the word of the Lord. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. This is before his crucifixion, by the way. The hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify Thee. Jesus is talking about himself in the third person, right? He's the son. Glorify me that I may glorify you. Verse 2. As thou hast given him, he's talking about himself, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Still talking about himself in the third person. Verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, 
with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Remember, Christ was not actually born at Christmas. He took flesh at Christmas. Christ is co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. For all of eternity, he had reigned in the highest heavens with God. And then what happened at Christmas was he took on flesh to become one of us. And now he's saying, let's go back to how it was before, Father. I'm ready to come back to you. Verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto men, which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. He's talking about his followers now, those of the flock of Christ. He's saying, they belong to you, Father, and you gave them to me. Verse 7. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given them, I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. Hopefully he's talking about us, right? That should be, these should be things that are true of us. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. And all mine are thine. And thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. I used to hate the language of John. I love this so much now. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. Verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two things to hold on to from this reading. The church nowadays has assumed responsibility for calling people out of the world in a way that only God can do. And that's what's driven us to sell out the church in a lot of ways. So when you find churches that do entertainment things to draw people to Christ, what you win them with is what you win them to. Churches think if we just get them in the walls, then we can save them. That's not how it works. The only way for a person to be saved is that God calls them. And you can't make someone a sheep who's a goat. You can't do it. God is the one who calls his flock. And then when they are called into the church, what do they find? For too many churches, what they find is a social club, not a group of people who've been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that's why I'm always harping on about changing your life, letting the Lord change your life. But we can't make sheep out of goats. And we need to stop trying that. The Lord is going to call people, and we need to make sure that when they come in here, they find a faithful group of disciples that can show them what it means to walk in the light. So that was that whole middle paragraph, verses 6 through 10. He's talking about, Lord, they are your sheep. You gave them to me. They're mine. Nobody can take them from my hand. We were reading a couple weeks ago, Jesus saying, I am the shepherd. They know my voice. All, all of this stuff is connected. We want to save the world. And yes, Christ died for the world, but God only calls some. And we need to have that discernment. The church in America lost that discernment. And if we're so desperate to save everybody, we're not going to save anybody. Let me say that one more time. I think a lot of churches need to hear it. If we're so desperate to save everybody, we're not going to save anybody. If there's a ship sinking and you've only got a couple life jackets, you can go and try and affix it to people who are going to fight you, or you can let some people that actually want to live grab a hold of one. That's what we're doing. We can't save everybody. Now, the second thing to hold on to, Jesus' prayer was that we would be one, right? Did we all hear that at the end? 
He has an extended prayer that goes on from here. He wants us to be one with each other, one with him, the same way Christ is one with the Father. We live in a time of great division where we've tolerated within local churches and between different churches division that does not glorify God. And I don't mean to make it sound easy, like it's easy to be of one heart and mind, but we've got to at least try. We've got to at least try. I get so worried about this era where churches are just so content to be apart from one another, so content to have diametrically opposed beliefs. And we just uh, I grew up in a time in the 90s, we, Methodists were overtly resentful of Baptists. And even today, I would preach a message sometime and people would say, you sound like a Baptist. Like that was a bad thing. Baptists are Christians. I believe in the church universal, and I believe that's what Christ is praying about here. There's, there's but one flock, and it's Christ Jesus' flock. There ain't the Methodist flock and the Baptist flock and the Episcopalian flock and the Lutheran flock, a big evangelical. There's just one flock, and it's the Christ Jesus' flock, and that's what we're here to be. Are we all on the same page? Let me ask you a very practical question. If you want to be one with somebody, do you think it's important to know them? Can you know somebody by just sitting in the same room and breathing the same air as them for one hour a week? That's kind of silly. Okay, so what I want to urge you to do at the close of worship, this really is the last thing, I'm going to exhort you to find ways to plug into the church so that you get to know other people more personally, so that you can seek the unity of mind that Christ calls you to. And I understand that that's kind of scary and invasive. And if you feel threatened by that, good. Because Christ is threatening. He threatens our way of life. He calls us into holiness. So I just, you know, if that's something you put on the back burner, I'm going to put it right up front and just uh, confront you with it and make you uncomfortable because that's what you pay me for. And I'm doing such a good job, aren't I? Let's close worship. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, a prayer that the Holy Spirit would come down and abide with us, not just in here, but as we go to our homes. Number... uh, 332.